This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I have two talks that I'm giving today, and the first one is going to focus on the image of God and the soul, and the second, the image of God and the body. The Catechism tells us we image God as a composite of body and soul, but I, I think it's good to take those in, in parts. While Scripture, as I'm sure Father Jordan will tell us, connects the image of God to our ability to exercise dominion in creation and to enter into communion with others, both with God in the Sabbath day, the worship of God, and with one another in the community of male and female, most of the theological tradition of the church tends to focus on the image of God in the human soul, in our rational soul. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in 356 observes of all the of all visible creatures only man is able to know and love his creator he is the only creature on earth that god has willed for his own sake and he alone is called to share by knowledge and love in god's own life in other words like god himself the human person is not just a something but a someone and as such possesses a unique dignity from all eternity. God willed that each one of us should exist. And God, as the feast we celebrate today tells us, gives us a guardian angel to accompany us, to guide us back to himself um, in, our, in our earthly life. The catechism in the next paragraph says, this is 357, he is capable of self-knowledge, of self-possession, and of freely giving himself and entering into communion with other persons. And he is called by grace to a covenant with his creator, to offer him a response of faith and love that no other creature can give in his stead. So as Father Jonah told us last night, St. Augustine's line, right? God will to create us without us, but he will not save us without us. We have to say yes to God's invitation to return to him in love. The, when we refer to the human soul, we're referring to, um, again, um, reference, referencing the catechism, the innermost aspect of man, that which is of greatest value in him, by which he is most especially in God's image. Soul signifies the spiritual principle in man. And the Catechism notes that when we distinguish soul and spirit, as Paul St. Paul does, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we're really referring to that deepest spiritual capacity of the human soul, to have divine life, the life of grace, the Holy Spirit live within us. Um, so it doesn't introduce a duality into our soul, um, to speak of body, soul, and spirit. So... How can we think about the way we image God um, as whole persons? Yes, but again, in this first talk that I'm doing, more especially in the, the capacities of our human soul, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas find um, an analogy within the operations of the human soul. Um, the, it's, some, it's often called the psychological analogy. First, a, a reminder, disclaimer, I know this is covered in other talks that have been given um, in the Thomistic Institute, but analogy, right? Um, whenever we use the same word to describe God and a human being, we're speaking analogously, meaning, this is what the Fourth Lateran Council tells us, there is both similarity and even greater dissimilarity between the application of that word. So if I say, um, Father Jonah is just, and I say that God is just, right? I'm speaking analogously. I'm not saying two completely different things, but Father Jonah may have, does have, well, um, hermeneutic of charity, folks, the virtue of justice, right? He's, he rightly orders his relationships to others, but God is perfect justice. God is justice itself. God doesn't have justice. He is just perfect justice. God doesn't have love. He is love. So analogous predication, 
right? So the, the language we're going to use describes truly something about us and truly something about God, but there is an even greater dissimilarity because God is an infinite, omnipotent being. We are finite creatures. So St. Augustine, searching for an apt way to think about the image of God in, in creation and in the human person, turned to the operations of the human soul which as a way to think about both the unity of God's divine nature as well as the distinction between the divine persons of the Trinity. Um, so the, he looked to particularly the soul in its activities of remembering, thinking about, and loving God. And we have to remember for St. Augustine, when we read memory, when Augustine says memoria, it doesn't just mean our ability to recall something. Um, for Augustine, memoria means our openness to being, our ability to understand and grasp reality as a whole, which analogously corresponds to the person of God the Father as the origin and unbegotten source of Trinitarian life. The intellect in knowing God corresponds to the person of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Um, the Logos, the eternal word of the Father, begotten by the Father in an act of love from all eternity and sharing fully in the Father's nature, consubstantial with the Father as we profess in the creed. So the, 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 the Son is the perfect reflection, the perfect image of God. St. Paul references this in a hymn which he includes in his letter to the Colossians, in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were created all things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the Son is the Father's perfect reflection, perfect self-expression, he is the, the Father's, again, consubstantial image from all eternity. The operation of the human will in loving God re analogously reflects, corresponds to the person of the Holy Spirit, who is eternally breathed forth by Father and Son as the bond of their mutual love or gift to one another. So for St. Augustine, when the one soul of the human person is engaged in the activities of remembering, knowing, and loving God, you see an image within creation, perhaps one of the clearest and best images of the image of God. And before he developed this at length in his kind of Trinitarian masterpiece, De Trinitate, even in the Confessions, written pretty early on in his career as a bishop, St. Augustine was thinking about this um, analogy so in book 12 of the Confessions, he writes, I wish that human disputants would reflect upon the triad within their own selves. These three aspects of the self are very different from the Trinity, but I may make the observation that on this triad, they could well exercise their minds and examine the problem, thereby becoming aware how far distant they are from it. The three aspects I mean are being, knowing, and willing. For I am, I know, and I will. Knowing and willing, I am. I know that I am, and I will. I will to be and know. St. Thomas um, says something similar, again, in locating the image of God in rational creatures and the operations of the intellect. St. Thomas, in the first part of this, his Summa, Summa Theologiae, writes, For the Son proceeds as the word of the intellect, the Holy Ghost proceeds as love of the will. Therefore, in rational creatures possessing intellect and will, there is found the representation of the Trinity by way of image, inasmuch as there is found in them the word conceived and the love proceeding. Notice that these three activities, these three operations of the one soul, 
So there you get a, a created reflection of the unity of the one God are interdependent on one another. And you heard this in that quote that I read you from Augustine's Confessions. So when we remember, thinking of memory in kind of the basic sense, or when we ponder and are open to the reality around us, the gift of creation, as Father Jonah um, talked about last night, we're using our minds to understand and we are willing ourselves to recall the thing that we're seeking to recall. When we seek to understand, we must remember that which we're thinking about and will ourselves to ponder it. When we desire something, we're using our minds to think about it and our memories to recall it. So again, these three activities are interdependent. We cannot think without remembering and willing to think. We can't will without thinking and without being open to the reality around us. So too in, to, to just continue the analogy for a moment, so too in salvation history, the divine persons act together to create us and to save us. The Catechism in 267 says this, quote, the divine persons are also inseparable in what they do but within the single divine operation, each shows forth what is proper to him in the Trinity, especially in the divine missions of the Son's incarnation and the gift of the Holy Spirit, unquote. So the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Spirit acts together to create the world, to, to bring us, to bring creation into being. And God, as a Trinity of persons, works together in our salvation, God the Father sending his Son for our salvation and to pour out the Holy Spirit on us so that we could have the life of grace dwelling within us. So there's a single unity of action, and yet we see distinct missions and operations of these divine persons. And so St. Thomas says we can fittingly ascribe particular missions to the divine persons, which are in a certain way reflective of the, their relations of origin within the life of the Trinity. So the Father is not sent, but the Son is fittingly sent to us in the Incarnation. The Spirit is fittingly sent to us in the outpouring of Pentecost and in the life of grace and the life of the Church. Okay, so that's, I know, that's, that's like some high theology to start the day, right? But this is, this is something that St. Augustine and... Uh, much of the tradition after, if, if God is the source of everything that is, then we can see the reflection of who God is in the world he's created, and especially in rational creatures whom he's created with the capacity to know him, love him, and respond to him. So human beings and angels, again, the guardian angels whose feast we celebrate today, also rational creatures, but spiritual creatures, not composites of body and soul like us. So how does this help us think more deeply? This is an intellectual retreat. How does this help us think more deeply about our life as Christians, our life of prayer? I think these basic operations of the soul in remembering, knowing, loving God, correspond to basic movements of the life of prayer and of the Christian life. So I want to spend just a little bit of time thinking about that. So let's, let's take these in turn. And let's take first, as St. As Augustine and St. Thomas do, let's take remembering. In a certain sense, the whole of St. Augustine's confessions is an exercise in memory and confession. He remembers his own sinfulness and his wandering far from God as a prodigal, and in doing so remembers the greatness of God's mercy toward him, that God never left him, God never abandoned him, and God worked through all of the circumstances in his life, his rejection of the Catholic faith in which he was uh, catechized by his mother, Monica, uh, and enrolled as a catechumen, which he rejected when he joined a Gnostic group for, for nine years. Um, even during that time, Augustine 
looking back, could see God's hand, God's providential hand leading him back toward himself. So that work, the confessions, is confessio, confession, in two senses. It's confession of sin and confession of the greatness of God's mercy and praise of God for his mercy. So in Book 11, St. Augustine says, Therefore I lay bare my feelings toward you by confessing my miseries and your mercies to us, so that the deliverance you have begun may be complete, so that I may cease to be wretched in myself and may find happiness in you. So even as a bishop, Augustine writes the Confessions fairly early on in his career as a bishop. Augustine understands himself to be a sinner, receiving healing in the hospital of the church, in which his wounds as a sinner are tended by Christ, the great physician, in the church's sacramental life. So, like St. Augustine, we can do the same thing in our own lives. We can remember and confess our sins and remember and confess God's mercy, God's goodness. The Psalms are wonderful examples of this, right? They, the, the Psalms are full of both confession of sin and acknowledgement of sin. In many of the Psalms we pray on Friday, for example, during uh, night prayer last night, penitential psalms, right? <laughs> psalms confessing our sin, our, our need for God's mercy, but then also confession of that mercy and of God's goodness um, and of God's presence to us. So at times, our memories are in need of healing, right? And sometimes we need prayer for healing of our memories. Sometimes we need counseling to help us work through things in our memories that we're stuck on. For a lot of that healing, though, the sacrament of reconciliation is a wonderful opportunity to experience the healing grace of God within our memories so that when we recall past sin, instead of being moved to shame or guilt, it can move us to praise of God for his goodness and mercy to us, which is exactly what Augustine does in the confession. Seeing, seeing the greatness of God's love for him. The point of remembering in the confessions is not to find himself. <laughs> Augustine remembers to find God in both the events of his life and within himself. God is, Augustine says in a beautiful phrase, interior intimo meo et superior sumo, superior sumo meo more inward than my most inward part and higher than the highest element within me. So in want, what, what Augustine tells us is in wandering from God in the events of his life, he wandered from himself. He lost himself. In returning to God, he returned to himself. But again, the point wasn't to find himself. The point was to find God. And he could do that by pondering the events of his life in the light of God's mercy. So the confessions, although sometimes people try to use them in this way, are not what we would call self-help literature, right? It's not about getting in touch with yourself to, to, to it's, it's about looking within, looking within our soul, looking within our, the past events of our life to remember the goodness of God to remember what, and to remember the mercy of God. This is one of the key differences between um, repentance and introspection. Um, scripture scholars like Father Jordan will tell us that within scripture we find a theme. Um, some scholars call it a, prof the, the, it's a kind of a literary motif, a prophetic call narrative. Whenever a person comes into the presence of God, they immediately become aware of their own sinfulness, right? Think of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, the whole focus in Luke's gospel, the whole focus of his prayer is himself. The tax collector stands in the back, won't raise his eyes to God, heaven and simply says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Why? Because the tax collector, unlike the Pharisee, sees whose presence 
he's standing in and becomes aware of himself in that light. When Moses is called by God out of the burning bush, one of the first things God says to him is, Moses, remove the sandals from your feet. The place on which you stand is holy ground. When Isaiah, in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah, recounts God's call to him, he has a vision of God within the temple seated on the throne, and his immediate reaction is, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. He becomes aware of his own unworthiness for his per- the call that God is giving him, so God sends an angel with a burning coal to touch and purify his lips so that he can speak God's word. Peter, in Luke chapter 5, after uh, Jesus has him cast his nets over the side of his boat after a fruit, fruitless night of fishing, and he pulls in this miraculous catch of fish, falls at Jesus' feet, falls on his knees and says, leave me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. In every one of these cases, what's happened is the person has become aware that they're standing in the presence of God. And in the light of who he is, that person begins to see himself as he is, in need of God's mercy, in need of God's healing, right? So introspection is me turning inside myself and trying to fix myself, trying to figure out what I can do to improve myself. Repentance is... I come into God's presence, and in light of who he is, I begin to see who I am, and I can seek his mercy in that. And by the way, that's, that's why, it, think about the way the church mentors us to pray. We always begin with the praise of God, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then later in the prayer, forgive us, our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. So we begin by entering into God's presence and then we become aware of our need, our need for mercy, our need for healing. So we image God when we remember, when we remember both his, his goodness, his mercy to us and our own sinfulness. But again, That sinfulness is not meant to cause us to, remembering our past sins is not meant to cause us to be despondent. It's meant to move us to praise of God for his goodness to us, right? And so that's, it's important to try to see this as an invitation to that kind of freedom, uh, that kind of freedom in our memories, that kind of, to be able to acknowledge our, honestly, our limitations, our sin, but to know that we're loved from all eternity and that God, God's mercy is always waiting like the father of the prodigal son to welcome us back with open arms. So what about thinking? What about thinking about God? I mean, that's why you're all here, right? That's why you're on an intellectual retreat to try to think about God more deeply, to understand God, understand your faith, more fully. St. Paul in Romans 12, 2 calls us to a renewal of our minds, to have our minds transformed. So we need to plunge our minds into the truth of scripture, into the truth of church teaching, so that our minds are purified from darkness, from patterns of worldly thinking, from some of our own uh, patterns of sinful thought. God speaks to us in his word, but we need to apply our minds to that word. St. Gregory the Great, in his dialogues, says this, Study, I beg you, and each day meditate on the words of your creator. Learn the heart of God in the words of God, so that you may long more ardently for eternity. So the more we ponder God's word, the more we ponder who God is, what he's done for us, the more our hearts are moved to love him, the more our hearts are, and and again, think of the interdependence of these various operations or activities of our soul. So study and prayer should go hand in hand. When you study about God, it should be an extension of your life of prayer, not something separate from it. Many of the fathers of the church will call a theologian someone who prays. 
you have a prayer life, you're a theologian, right? Because you're putting your mind, you're putting your soul in contact with the source of truth, with the source of reality. St. Bonaventure, um, in the opening of his introductory text for students in theology, corresponding to Aquinas's Summa, Summa Theologiae, again, um, this is his itinerarium mentus and deum, the mind's journey to God. St. Bonaventure says this to students, do not think you can read without unction, speculate without devotion, investigate without wonder, observe without joy, know without love, understand without humility, or reflect without grace. Open your eyes then, alert your inner ears, unseal your lips and apply your heart so that in your studies you may discover, see, hear, praise, love, serve, and glorify your God. The point of studying about God is to grow in knowledge of God, but then in turn in love of God. Bonaventure says elsewhere, the purpose of theology is to make us holy. In fact, that's its first purpose. It's not to get fancy degrees and titles. It's it's to help us move forward in holiness of life, with it, which is our basic vocation as Christians. St. Thomas, at the beginning of the Summa, refers to what we call theology as sacra doctrina, sacred teaching. Um, and St. Thomas says that sacra doctrina is a science, a science that is both speculative and practical, um, a science which proceeds by logic and argument the way any other science does, like geometry or physics. The difference is the object of theology is God, and the first principles of this science are given to us by God in his revelation of himself to us um, and in our participation of the knowledge of the blessed, the blessed in heaven. So theology is rooted in contemplation, the more deeply we contemplate, understand God, um, the more capable we are of engaging in good theology, good, clear thinking and uh, articulation about God. So I mean, another way to say this, um, one of my former professors uh, was fond of saying, I think it's a good shorthand here, when it's done rightly, theology is just intellectual worship, right? It's using our minds to confess the greatness, the majesty, the glory of God, who is always greater than our minds or our language and our categories. There's a wonderful story um, about St. Augustine. <laughs> um, when writing his masterpiece on the Trinity, De Trinitate, walking along the shore of the, uh, the sea, and Augustine comes across a small child who is digging a hole in the on the beach. And Augustine says, son, what are you doing? And the child says to him, well, I'm digging a hole so I can put the ocean into my hole. And St. Augustine says, you'll never put the ocean into that little hole. And the child says, and you will never understand the mystery of the Holy Trinity, and then disappeared, <laughs> right? That's theology, right? It's It's confessing the mystery of who God is and the greatness of his love for us, even though that always exceeds our ability to fully confess. But the point of study, as we heard Gregor, St. Gregory say, St. Bonaventure say, St. Thomas say in a different way, the point of pondering who God is and what he's done for us is that we can know and love him more fully. So let's think about that last operation. Um, loving. Again, we ponder God, we remember God through prayer and study so that we can love him more. Father Jonah said this to us last night. Love is the greatest of all the virtues. It's the beginning and goal of the infused theological virtues of faith and, faith and hope. Um, faith is and hope are our response to God's love and aim at uniting us to God in love. So love, God's love awakens faith and hope in us. The love of God, Paul says, 
in Romans 5, poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. It's God's love given to us, infused in us by the work, by the operation of the Holy Spirit that gives us the capacity to begin to love him in return and also then to love our neighbor. Um, the first letter of John puts it very concisely in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. That's, that's what enables us to love God, is that we have been first been loved by him. So the more we become aware of his love for us, the more we, in turn, grow in our capacity to love him. Um, think of the what our Lord calls the greatest commandment which he cites in the Gospels, which is actually a citation of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's because of the Holy Spirit living in us, infusing us with these virtues of love, faith, hope, that we have that capacity to love God. Um, and then that same capacity enables us to practice love, to practice charity toward our, toward our neighbor, toward, toward those around us. Meditative prayer can be a really wonderful way to help us in, in, enrich, um, enliven our love for God. Because it enables us to ponder, to reflect on the depth of God's love for us meditating on the passion, um, a practice recommended by a lot of saints. But it, it, it then can help redirect our own passions, desires, so that we are, they are ordered toward God, so that they're ordered toward the love of God. The culmination of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, um, can we talk about Jesuits here? Is that okay? It's an ecumenical gathering, right? Okay. Let, it, let it pass. Thank you. I thank you for your forbearance. Um, the, the culmination, if any of you have done the spiritual exercises on a retreat, is the contemplation to receive the love of God, right? And the, the highlight of that is the uh, sushipe, the, the prayer. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, my entire will, all that I have and possess, you have given all to me. To you, O Lord, I return it. All is yours. Dispose of it wholly according to your will. Give me only your love and your grace, for this is sufficient for me. So having received all from God, we offer all that we have and are to God. That, again, it's an expansion of our spiritual hearts to grasp more deeply God's love for us and to direct that love back to him. Spending time in adoration is a wonderful opportunity to do this, right? To just reflect upon the reality of God's love for us, that the second person of the Blessed Trinity is present with, with us under, under the sacramental signs of the Eucharist. And certainly participating in the Eucharist itself, the Eucharist is the sacrament of love par excellence. It's where we taste the love of God communicated to us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And that then gives us the capacity to love in turn. Um, St. Augustine famously says, tells, one of his, tells his congregations in receiving the Eucharist, become what you receive. You receive the body of Christ. So now you are, you are capacitated. You are given the ability to become, to live as the body of Christ in your exercise of charity toward one another, in your exercise of charity toward those who have no faith, those outside of the church. So let me just conclude um, again with a prayer and the same prayer with which we began, but maybe hearing it a little bit more um, deeply. Um, so again, the, the prayer of St. Augustine. Eternal God, who are the light of the minds that know you, 
the joy of the hearts that love you, the strength of the wills that serve you. Grant us to know you, that we may truly love you, and so to love you, that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Um, I am going to try very hard to remember to repeat back your questions as you ask them. Um, so, the floor is open. Yes, please. Um, I remember what you said about the human soul life, like the innermost aspect of that. And then you also said something about like the duality of man's nature. Can you repeat again? What you so, we're, um, sure, uh, the composite, the, the catechism, no, no, wait a minute. Repeat the question. <laughs> Time out. So could I repeat what I said about the duality of the human person and the soul being the deepest part of the, of the human person? Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay, good. Um, so the, the catechism kind of summarizing the tradition tells us that as human beings in the image of God, we are a composite of body and soul. We are a unity of body and soul. Again, unlike angels who are also rational creatures, who are spiritual creatures, they do not have bodies. Um, so we are unique. Um, the, as Father Jonah said to us last night, the, the lowest of the rational creatures, but the highest, as the Catechism says, quoting the Second Vatican Council, the highest of the creatures of the visible world whom God created for his own sake, right? We have this capacity to know and love God. And then the catechism also is in describing the soul as kind of the deepest um, uh, aspect of the human person and possessed of this spirit. Well, let me quote the catechism again. This is 363. The soul also refers to the inmost aspect of man, that which is of greatest value in him, that by which he is most especially in God's image. Soul signifies the spiritual principle in him. And again, that's that's 363 in the catechism. So and a, a later paragraph in the catechism will say that when we speak of the spirit, body, soul and spirit, as what St. Paul does in his letter to the Thessalonians um, at the end of the letter. What we're referring to when we say spirit, we're not introducing a duality into the soul. We're, spirit there refers to the capacity of the human soul to have God's divine life dwell within it. It has this deeper spiritual capacity to participate in the life of grace. So it's not like there's a there's a two-story or two, two parts in the human soul. It's one reality. But the soul is both a, a principle of life for all human beings, but it's also the place where divine life takes root in us and where we begin to participate and grow in the life of grace. Thank you. Great questions. Yes, please. Um, could you, I, I loved the distinction that you made between repentance and introspection and self-help literature. Could you say a little bit more about that? It, sure. So the, 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 the question... Um, the distinction between repentance and introspection and uh, self-help literature. It, it, to, to come at it in a slightly different way, it is interesting that we look at um, early Christian authors, and they will speak of what we would call therapy, therapeia, right? But they're talking about a much deeper therapy of the soul, right? And a therapy that's that is centered on the work of grace within us. So it's 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 God's healing grace at work within us, setting us free, liberating us from things that hold us back in our memories, our minds, um, it, things that hold back our our wills from freely freely choosing to love God. So on one level, it is it it, it is a kind of therapy. But unfortunately, the connotation that therapy can have, not always, by the way, there's good Christian counseling therapy out there. There's therapy out there that's based on a solid understanding of who the human person is. Um, so, And sometimes counseling or therapy can be really helpful in working through things. So I, I don't mean to discount that. But in making that distinction, I'm thinking specifically of self-help 
or uh, kind of secular approaches to therapy, which in, are basically focused on let's help you fix yourself, right? Let's let's help you turn within, assess yourself, make an in, figure out what's wrong, and then take steps to begin to fix those things. And what what the the, the good news and the bad news of the Christian message is we can't fix ourselves. That's both good news and bad. The good news is we don't have to. God, God offers us that healing, right? But um, we have to recognize that we are, we're in need of it. I can't, I can't think myself out of my fallenness. I can't outthink my um, sinfulness and the things that hold me back. In my, but the grace of God can liberate me. So that's so genuine repentance again is a response to the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing to light things in us that need to be healed, changed, attachments to sinful things that need to be broken, and re, um, so our desires can be rightly ordered. Um, so again, I'm not discounting all all therapy or counseling. It, it can be very valuable. It can have a place, but not when it doesn't look at that need for that deeper healing that God's grace provides us and that we we need most of all. So thank you for the question. Yes? Off of that, um, not exactly sure who was saying about like um, man's innate memory of what it was like before original sin, like before the fall and um, like everyone's need for um, forgiveness because they know like man is fallen. Um, it's evident just by human nature that man sins and that there's bad in the world. Um, so do you think maybe then that self-help literature might be something as like a secular response to man's fallenness by taking out God from the equation? Um, Great question. So the question, um, um, you, you mentioned a, a, an innate memory of our pre-fallen condition and how self-help literature might be kind of indicated an awareness of that without necessarily referencing God. Mm -hmm. um, is that yeah. fair? Okay. I would qualify the language of um, innate memory of our prelapsarian state, the state of original innocence. Uh, John Paul II is very clear, and I'll say a little bit more about him and his teaching in, in the later talk I'm going to do, but is very clear we don't have access, none of us, whether by way of memory, individually or collectively, have access to what it's like to live in an, a world unmarked by the fall or to, to experience human nature in, this, in the state of grace untouched by sin. Scripture, um, particularly the opening chapters of Genesis, give us a what John Paul II calls our revealed theological prehistory. That is, they give us a record, God's own revelation of, in a sense, how God intended, the, the wholeness that God intended in creation. But again, we, we have no memory, we have no experience. The only way we can access that is through what we're given in revelation, because it is so outside of our experience. Because as, as, as you note in your question, our experience is of living in a fallen world and of being fallen beings in that world. H. Richard Niebuhr, a 20th century Protestant theologian, once said, the doctrine of original sin is the only Christian doctrine for which we have empirical proof. All you have to do is look honestly at the world around us. There's something wrong with people. There, there, there's, something, there's something wrong with this world, right? If you cannot pick up a newspaper, well, I'm dating myself when I say pick up. <laughs> Who picks up a newspaper anymore? Father Jonah kindly did not tell you that I've been at CUA for 30 years um, teaching there. Because when I hear people say that, or when I say that to people, my mind says to me, you, you sound really old. You know that? But then I have adult children who say really helpful things to me like, Dad, you are really old. <laughs> so that, anyhow, pick up a newspaper. Go online, right? All you have to do is look at what's going on in the world and say, there's something wrong. Well, that something wrong is what Christian tradition and revelation calls original sin. 
are turning away from God, our creator, and our the ultimate source of our happiness and trying to find our happiness in all the things in this world that can never do that. Um, again, St. Augustine has such a profound awareness of this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless till they rest in you, he says in Confessions 1.1. Our problem is we keep trying to find our happiness in all the things around us when the only thing that ultimately satisfies us is God. But we can't think our way out of that dilemma. We have to respond to God's grace, which invites us and gives us the ability to respond to him and, and to find our happiness in him. Great questions, guys. Yes? Uh, when you talk about the memory, you said it wasn't like just recollection, but sort of an ability to grasp reality as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and that like ability to grasp reality as a whole usually seems like part of the intellect. Yes. Um, so can you just say a little bit more about how to like distinguish memory from intellect? Yeah. Um, and again, this is this is an understanding that's that's um, it, it's Saint Augustine. Some some scholar. Oh, oh, sorry. Repeat the question. <laughs> Just kind of keep pumping the brakes. You know. Oh, I never learned. <laughs> um, well, me too. Most of the time. So say a little. The question is: say a little bit more about memory. Um, as being this openness to reality, openness to being, not simply um, the ability to recall. Um, and that's, that's an understanding that is unique uh, to Augustine. And what, what Augustine is trying to, um, he, he's trying to avoid the platonic idea that we have kind of a memory of past lives because Augustine doesn't think the soul is eternal or that it's reincarnated over and over again. That's a platonic idea that as a Christian, he rejects, but he does think that there's a way in which there's this capacity that is deeper than our, just our, just our ability to engage in thought in intellection. It's, it's this openness to being the ability to ponder. St. Thomas mentions it as well. Some of what St. Augustine is describing, I think Thomas would describe as part of the operation of our speculative intellect. Um, St. <laughs> Augustine doesn't quite put it in those terms. Um, but, but again, why, why, is, why is he thinking of memory in this way? Because again, memoria for him analogously corresponds to the person of God the Father who is the source of Trinitarian life. He's the source of the eternal generation of the Son and the son, and with his consubstantial son, breathes forth the Holy Spirit um, in this eternal communion of love. So the father as the unbegotten ground of Trinitarian life has a created reflection in this capacity of the human soul to be open to these deeper questions of being and of truth, ultimately. Um, and again, Augustine we're trying to find a Christian way to, to move past some of the platonic ideas that he inherited will ultimately say it's the light of God shining in our minds that enables us to know truth. But it memory, uh, memory and intellect work together, as does will. Again, we can think about these operations discreetly, but they are, they're always working together. In thinking, I am remembering that aspect of reality, which I'm thinking about, and I'm willing to think about it, right? So the, these, these operations are interdependent, codependent on one another um, in a way that reflects, again, the one God who in creation and salvation works, the divine persons work together with a single, with a single end. <laughs> I hope that helps. Yeah. Um, but again, it's not, just, it's not just our ability to recall or download information from our past. Some scholars have said, well, it's like the subconscious. It's not like the subconscious. That's a, that's a uh, yeah, that's a, uh, a bad reading of Augustine, I think. So. Time for one more question. Okay, final, final question. Yes, please. Um, so I know a lot of people who 
don't have some disbelief in scripture or have misinterpreted parts of scripture, or they also don't fully understand what it means to be created in the image of God, mm-hmm. but they profess to have a love and devotion to God. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's still possible for them to really truly love and remember God, or do you think that that's just maybe a false love? Hmm. So the, the the question, and I want to make sure I get your question right in, in trying to think about a response. So some people, um, you say, uh, claim, have a faulty reading of scripture and maybe don't un- fully understand this reality of being in the image of God, but can they still know, remember and love God in spite of that deficient understanding? Is that? Yeah. Okay, great question. Um, I think, yes, to a degree, um, and, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of um, thinking in terms of Augustine this, this morning, because he's kind of in, in the background of a lot of this, this talk, but Augustine, in, especially in books six and seven of the Confessions, is talking about how he knew he never he never doubted that there was a god but he his knowledge of god was flawed certainly when he was a maniche and thought that there was a good god who created spirit and light and an evil god who created matter but even after he made an intellectual break with the maniches this is book 7 um and begins to see, no, 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 God is spiritual. God is immaterial. Um, that enables him to understand that God could create everything. And there is evil in creation, but God's not the author of that evil because evil is a subtraction, a privation from creation. But Augustine, even with that inadequate understanding of God, it's he still has an understanding of God. And looking back on his life, he sees God using those events to draw him to himself. So can God work with people who have an imperfect understanding of him or an imperfect understanding of scripture? Yes. But in working with them, God always leads them, invites them to a deeper, fuller, more adequate understanding of the truth. And how do we safeguard ourselves from bad readings of scripture? I'll leave a full answer to, of that to Father Jordan. But short answer, we, we read within the communion of the church, right? So it's not just my own interpretation, it's, am I interpreting in line with what the early Christians called the rule of faith, our profession of faith in the creed, and with the way the church has understood and pondered the sacred text. So it's, I'm I'm safeguarded against, it's not that I shouldn't study scripture and try to, and, and unfortunately we have way too many biblically illiterate Catholics running around, right? We need St. Jerome, whose feast we had the other day, said, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. We need to know the scriptures, but we need to read them in communion um, and not simply with not simply project our own ideas into the text. All right, thank you all. You've been great. Um, I'll give the floor back to you.